Welcome to Founders First, a show about mental health in entrepreneurship and how to build resilience to stay stronger, happier, and be more successful. You can engage more in the conversation by going to the App Store on your phone and searching Founders First Community. Our guest today is the author of Reboot, a book both Inc. Magazine and Bloomberg say every entrepreneur should read. He's been called the CEO whisperer and maybe best known for making his billionaire clients cry, the good kind of crying. He's one of the 100 most influential people of the new economy, and he tops lists from both Forbes and Worth. As an incredibly successful founder himself, he's now calling upon the entrepreneurial hype machine that defined the term grit to consider a more realistic and graceful approach based instead on resilience. Today I'm speaking with Jerry Colonna. Jerry, one of the things I appreciate most about your book and your philosophy is that you're very open with your own struggles and how they have informed your journey. You grew up in Brooklyn and in Queens, New York. You're one of seven kids and things were difficult. There was both alcoholism and mental illness in your family, not a lot of stability. You've noted that this kind of background is very common among entrepreneurs and have said that deciding to become a venture capitalist in hopes of making money may have been how you pursued a sense of security you were missing as a child. We're all pretty much entrepreneurs here, which means I'm sure your story resides with many of us, resonates with many of us. So I'd like to ask, how do we begin to identify the things we learned as children that are holding us back as leaders or just as people? Well, I'll answer the question first by uh, appreciating the fact that you appreciated my openness. And uh, I'll make a meta comment about that, which will back into the answer to your question. You know, as the author of a book, in a sense, I'm the leader. I'm the leader of the conversation, right? Those who have picked up the book and are listening, I'm leading. Just like now you've got me in the sort of sage on the stage spot, so I'm a leader. When those of us hold power, which is what happens when you're a leader, and then take the brave step of showing up and being real, a magical thing happens. We start to create safe space for other people. And I think there's a moral and ethical responsibility to actually do that. So when I endeavored to, to write the book, there was no way I was going to write a book without showing up myself. As I wrote in the introduction, I wasn't going to write a finger wagging book. These are the five things you should do to not be a shitty leader. <laughs> when we start that process, we have to look at the process, the, the conditions that create safety. And one of the reasons why many of the people who are listening right now, entrepreneurs and leaders, choose not to occupy, not to step into that space is because they carry a myth that they're supposed to have all the answers. They carry the myth that they're supposed to be infallible, that they're supposed to be, in effect, unbreakable. And not to get too political for a moment, we have all experienced the consequence of leadership that refuses to acknowledge when they're wrong, when they've made a mistake, when they don't have an answer. And just like on a global scale, 
right now, we're experiencing consequences of that. On a micro scale in our companies, it's the same thing. So before endeavoring that process, we have to look at the conditions that create safety. When we think about as leaders, we all are built from our experiences, right? We're built from our experiences in our childhood, our past experiences leading our company. What, um, how do we start to dig down to that layer of like what has programmed us to be who we are? When, when is the right time to do that? Well, I, again, I think implicit in your question is the answer. And the way I would put it is this. It's not just us as leaders. All of us as humans. Mm-hmm. Every single one of us is a consequence of the belief systems that we established as children to keep ourselves safe. As they say in the book, to feel love, safety, and belonging. To be okay with the world. Mm-hmm. Because the experience of becoming a human, a fully-fledged human being, a grown-up, is a process of encountering rough edges all the time. Your second half question is, when is there a good time to begin? Right now. Literally right now. And if it wasn't right now, it's the day before. And if it wasn't then, it was the day before that. The point is, this is your life. Right? That leads to the second, to the third question, which is, how do you do that? And that's the power of questions. That's why every chapter I, I try to end with questions that are designed to get people to think. And so the questions I would put to somebody today is, what kind of leader would you like to be? And what's powerful about that question is the implicit statement, there are multiple kinds of leaders, right? When I say that to a client or I'm in a gathering like this, people's eyes, their eyebrows go up. Because all of a sudden they realize they actually have choice. Because they've been carrying a model in their mind, an archetype of what they think a leader is supposed to be. And then they judge themselves against that. And the result is they come up short. And by the way, everything I've just said about leader, you can substitute the word adult. Hmm. Right? Because the corollary question is, what kind of adult would I like to be? For example, would I like to be the kind of adult that believes the world is a dog-eat-dog world and I better get mine before somebody gets theirs and it's horrible? And if I make that choice, and it is a choice, what kind of life do I lead as a consequence of that choice? So these are difficult questions, but they're not impossible. You just start by asking yourself those questions. In our peakability training, we talk a lot about the difference between business success and happiness on a shift in this direction. As many of us have learned the hard way that these two things are actually different things. I'd like to share an observation you made about your time in New York at the height of your VC success. You said, the irony was that I was at the peak of my external affirmation. I was financially successful. I was well-regarded, yet inside I felt hollow, empty, and hurting. I was lost and confused. I remember contemplating leaping in front of the subway at the Wall Street station in downtown Manhattan. With all my success, if I couldn't be happy now, why even go on? Many of us here have had similar crippling moments. For others, they're still ahead. Based on your own experience and what you've learned since then, what are the questions we should be asking ourselves to get ahead of such crisis moments? Or how do we get ahead of just pushing through the kind of hopelessness that 
might not bring us to the breaking point, but will keep us from ever being happy or reaching our full potential? Well, the first thing to do is to recognize uh, what I would describe as the house of cards construct that leads one to that point. And for me, uh, the house of cards was if I have enough money, if I have enough external approbation, if I am believed as New York Magazine described Fred Wilson and I, that I am a prince of New York, then I'll be safe Mm. and I'll be loved. Or as a client said to me just before this call, I won't be despised. Mm. That's a fallacy. And it's that fundamental fallacy that leads us to that breakdown moment. Because when we achieve the external accoutrements of success and we end up empty inside, we have a crisis. I'm reminded of something Buzz Aldrin said when he described his depression after achieving the miraculous. He saw the earth from the vantage point of the moon. And what he said was, I looked out and I said, is that all there is? Right? When that ennui sets in and it says, I have the vantage point of the earth from the I have the earth from the vantage point of the moon, and that's all there is. Right? We can leap, or we can say, okay, I've got to rebuild this. I've got to do this differently. I have to define success, not merely in terms of return on investment, but in how am I living my life? Uh, my, my dear teacher, Parker Palmer, who's in his 80s and is a brilliant Quaker teacher, and I did a podcast conversation several years ago, and we, we looked at this question, and, we, and, and what we came to is that the operative question is not have I been successful, but have I been kind? Hmm. And at the end of my days, when I look back, what do I want people to feel about me? I want them to look at me and say, this time on this planet was meaningful. You made a difference in people's lives. discovery moment you talked about reaching some level of success that in our minds we had placed some sort of vision around right prince of manhattan prince of new york must have meant something to you before you were that uh, or in your head kind of pre-programmed that that was something we all experience that to certain degrees i think as entrepreneurs one of the patterns i see so often i did this in my own companies was you know i was in my 20s and i wanted to build a million dollar company actually because i wanted to join entrepreneurs organization to join eo because that was their requirement to join. And I built a company to a million dollars and it was amazing for about two minutes. And then <laughs> around right. and go, I want to build a $10 million company. And that number came from nowhere. There wasn't even any real attachment associated with it. And then years later, my business partner and I realized that in the Southeast where we were building our company in North Carolina, that almost no companies exit for over a hundred million dollars. We kind of did a little spreadsheet of what the exits had been over the last 10 years. And we were like, we want to be not a $30 million, $50 million exit. We want to get above $100 million. 
And again, it came from such a silly place, right? We didn't know what that meant or what that would feel like. I'm curious, like, is there, is there, is that a universal experience that we set this milestone, this flag in the distance? And as leaders, we always get there and look around and go, this isn't that cool. Is that why we set the new flag? I guess there's two questions there, but is this, is that a universal truth that we're all just missing? Is that the flag isn't the, isn't as good as we think it is? At the risk of sounding like a politician, I'm not going to answer that question immediately. <laughs> the first thing I'm going to do is ask you a question. What were you chasing? For yeah, yeah. When you relevance. were in your 20s? Relevance. relevance. Yeah, yeah. Kid from a small town, went to a big yeah. university, lost in the numbers, started a company in a big market, was a nobody, wanted to be right. known right. in the business world. Right, 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 right. So just hang out right there, Aaron. Because it's actually still a tender spot for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. So kid from a small town, the fear was that I'm going to be a nobody. Stay in that spot. So much of our toxic behavior stems from being afraid of being a nobody, being irrelevant, passing by this life and not having mattered. And we grow up feeling the, that, you know, for, my, for me, you know, growing up in Brooklyn and then later moving to Queens, you know, the Emerald City was Manhattan. We literally called it the city, even though technically we lived in the city, right? And it was across the river, right? Sound like Bruce Springsteen got across the river. It was across the river. It was across the East River. And we, it was this golden city. This emerald city, this place, this magical place. And if I could get there, then I would matter. So is this universal? I don't know that everybody has it. I have yet to encounter people in different cultures who don't have it. And I would say that in some ways, the drive creates the best of us. Because it got you out of that small town. It got you into the equivalent, if not ex- exactly, EO. It made you relevant. But here's a question, and you can choose to answer it or not. What did it cost you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think my own constant analysis. So the, the big areas where I've struggled as an entrepreneur over the years were with anxiety, with depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in the, along the anxiety side, as I've gone through therapy over many years to try and understand this, a big discovery was that my, you know, having the spidey sense out all the time of trying to figure out who was, what was a risk, what was around me came from in part by always kind of ranking my social status, right? Because I was trying to be relevant. I was trying to be significant and I wanted in every room to know where I stood. And so I then took that pattern and I share this a lot with our Founders First community that these patterns I built for myself and really hardened in the business world because they started to make me successful. They actually kind of worked in a lot of ways, to your point. They got me out of that town. They kept me motivated Then spilled over into every other part of my life. I would go, even after my exit in 2012, we sold the company for over $100 million, which was my crazy goal from years ago. And I would go out and I started to have social anxiety that wasn't just like in the boardroom or in pressure situations. It was in every situation. I would go to a restaurant with my wife and sit down and I'd be constantly scanning. It was that same behavior of trying to kind of socially rank myself and figure out where I am in the pecking order. 
And it spilled over into all sorts of parts of my life in really, really disruptive ways. You must have really uh, resonated and related to my description of my own childhood as growing up with a kind of hypervigilance and constantly watching things. And the way I use that as a superpower, both as a reporter and then later as a coach, I just used it with you Mm -hmm. because I heard you speaking. I heard the 20-year-old in you. Worrying about not being relevant. And notice what's happening right now. You're landing, I'm landing. I'm hoping this is helpful for people because now we're being real. Mm -hmm. We're not, we're not just performing. Right. I find in my own life that when the inner me and the outer me are in sync, my anxiety and depression is ameliorated, if not entirely mitigated. Mm. Because I get to be me. Now, because I know we've got a bunch of entrepreneurs on the phone or in the rooms, or whatever this virtual space that we're in. Uh, Can you lead from that place? Mm -hmm. Can you lead not from the desperate child looking across the river at Manhattan, dreaming about the Emerald City, Mm -hmm. or the little boy from a small town who's desperately trying to be relevant. Mm -hmm. Can you lead from that place of knowing that that person exists and knowing that you're okay even if you don't make it across the river? You're worthy of love, safety, and belonging, even if you don't make it to the Emerald City. My first uh, experience with a therapist who specialized in anxiety was in North Carolina. I forget uh, his name, but he wrote the book called Don't Panic. <laughs> I, can't forget, <laughs> I can't forget a book. <laughs> Did it have an exclamation point? I think it had an exclamation point. <laughs> and I actually only ever met with him once because I feel like he told me everything that I needed to know, yet it was impossibly hard in that first meeting. And it, and it really resonates with what what you're sharing about the aligning kind of what's inside and out. And he said, the, the large part of your struggle, he's speaking to me, is um, the fact that you are trying to hide all of these things on the inside from everyone else around you. If you simply let all of these things you're scared of the world knowing about you out, then so much of the tension and the pressure goes away. And it took me probably two or three months of thinking about that, going, damn it, he's right. And I don't really don't want to do that. And I started, I think the first conversation I ever had was at at a bar with a friend. And I just, you know, interjected a little bit at the front of like the, how you doing, how you doing conversation that we all do and everybody's good and revenues up and all that sort of BS. Right. And I I don't do that anymore, but keep going. (laughs) (laughs) So you get in the bar. (laughs) Even the bar part or. (laughs) No, no, no. I interrupted you. You were doing this in the bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and and I shared it, and and actually, it was a it was a surprisingly almost frustrating response um, mm. that my friend seemed a little confused, and then quickly changed the subject, which was very weird. It was actually <laughs> way worse than I was hoping it would go. I was hoping he'd put his arms around me and say, "Oh, what a what a terrible struggle," and I'm here for you. Um, yet, I found an hour later, I was still alive. I hadn't died. <laughs> And then I found the next day in the next month that that same friend still wanted to hang out with me. 
and we were still friends and it didn't cheapen the relationship at all. In fact, he wanted to hang out more than a lot of my other friends wanted to hang out. I felt like it almost brought us closer together. So in the moment, I was terrified. In the moment when I shared with him, I was even more terrified. <laughs> I didn't get the response I was hoping for, yet it still worked out in the end. Obviously, I'm still alive here today. And that started a pattern for me of trying to align those two things, just trying to be as open as I can with people about here's where I'm struggling. And I can share that from my experience with that, yeah, half the time people don't really want to hear it or don't take it maybe like the way I would want them to take it. But it actually just works for me regardless, whether they you know, look like they love me and embrace me or they give me a funny look and change the subject. It actually still helps me massively the same amount, no matter what the response is. Yeah, I think I love your story and I'll, I'll just key off one point. Uh, we're not socialized and trained to be with somebody else's pain and somebody else's struggle. And so I actually empathize with your friend because he didn't know what to do because he's so afraid of saying the wrong thing. And so he ignores it. And uh, that reinforces the belief, oh, I better not take that risk. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, there's a corollary that I encounter a lot with my clients, which is, well, Jerry, if I as CEO show up in that way, show up as real, aren't my, aren't my employees going to freak out? Mm -hmm. And I acknowledge that the potential exists, especially for, for employees who really want to participate in being infantilized and treated like children. And some employees do. But as I often say, and they might leave, but as I often say, would you rather them stay for a lie? Because that's not the kind of company I want to build. I want to build a company where is an esprit de corps that's built around the notion that we're all in this together and that we stand shoulder to shoulder with each other and that we face the difficulties together with honesty and mutual belief. And then let's go make some magic. Mm -hmm. Let's create amazing products. Let's sell the most brilliant service possible. Let's delight our customers. And oh, by the way, at the end of the day, and we look each other in the eye and say, hey, good job. We had fun this week. We worked our tails off, but we had fun. That's the way I want to live my life. Yeah. Yeah. Two weeks ago, our, our guest was your good friend, Brad Feld. And my neighbor, he lives right up the road. Your neighbor even, I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah. He shared that, um, that. You know, when, when starting his more recent organizations, he called out Foundry Group specifically that that was part of their code among the co-founders. And I'm sure that then becomes something that can spread through the rest of the organization. But what an incredible gift to start with that at the top. So everyone knows that's the expectation here. He called it being emotionally available, being emotionally supporting, uh, supportive to each other, right? Not just there for business tactical items, but there for each other individually. That's really different than how most companies are created, right? We certainly don't write those things into our charters. When do we have this conversation? If, if entrepreneurs are on this call, they're starting a company right now and putting a team together. Is that a day one conversation? This is our market. This is what we're building. This is our product. And here's how we're going to operate as a team with each other. 
It's Alfred Wilson and I started Flatiron Partners. And it is how my partners and I, Dan, Ali, Collett, and myself started Reboot. Hmm. Um, you know, it, a simpler way to do it is to ask yourself another one of the Jerry-like questions, which is what kind of company do you want to work for? Mm-hmm. Because that's what you're building. And too often clients will wake up and they've got 50 or 100 employees and they're like, who the fuck built this company? I don't want this company. I don't like coming to work. It's like, well, hello. <laughs> Guess who built the company? You gather the team together and you say, okay, what do we want to do about this? Because maybe we want to change things. A kind of connecting point in, in your story in your book and, and also that we've seen with other folks recently about crisis and then support. So as entrepreneurs, we're often calculating the risk of what we do based off of the idea that others around us, parents, spouses, colleagues, even co-founders, as we we're just talking about, provide the stability that keeps us from going off the rails emotionally or financially when we build our companies. I realize when thinking about today's discussion that you're actually our third forum guest in a row whose life was seriously impacted by 9-11. Um, you, Brad Feld, shared in his story, um, and Errol Dobler, a former Navy SEAL who joined us in September. 9-11 was a traumatizing event. And right now in October of 2020, we have such a convergence of massive crises, health, social, political, environmental, people are just rattled. Well, entrepreneurship alone is a hard road. Maybe now the things we relied on for some stability around us are no longer so stable. So I'd like to ask how we stay the course in times of trauma, in a time when everything around us seems to be falling apart. How do we maintain vision on the bigger picture or how do we keep ourselves together in those moments? So since about March, I've often turned to a quote from one of my teachers, a Buddhist teacher named Ani Pema Chodron. And in the quote, uh, which comes from her book, Comfortable with Uncertainty, she notes that all around us, the weather is changing. The sky is shifting, the wind is blowing, sometimes a storm rolls through. And her advice is for us to sit like a mountain in the midst of a hurricane. Sit like a mountain in the midst of a hurricane. And when I first started reading that quote and taking it in, one of the things I realized was that it's problematic because it can be misread as to sit rigidly, unshaking, unbreakable. But I don't think that that's what you meant. And so then I asked myself, well, what is the mountain? And I realized the mountain is purpose, is values. The mountain are our beliefs in the world. So, for example, I might sound Pollyanna, but I believe that people are basically good. And so in the midst of all of the storm, all of the distress, I look for the good in myself, in my colleagues, in my friends, in the world at large, even in people whose belief systems differ from mine. Because that's the world I want to live in. And that is unshakable. 
that is virus proof. I'm not virus proof, but that is virus proof. Um, when we look at the cascade of crises, health, economic, uh, the racial reckoning, where finally we're asking the questions about white supremacy and patriarchal society and the consequences of that. And for God's sake, can we create a world that actually lives up to our ideals? Every one of those incidents is an opportunity to live into the world that we say we want to have. You know, my famous question is, how have I been complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? My outwardly uh, oriented version of that question is, how have I benefited from the conditions I say I don't want? I am a white cisgendered male of power and privilege. I have benefited enormously. Even my journey from across the river benefited from the fact that I was white. If I deny that, I deny the world that I want to see. So what do I have to do? What am I willing to give up that I love and I benefit from in order to see the world that I want to have? That's my opportunity, implicit in all of this. And holding forth on that creates the, the mountain. You had your, your own sort of rock bottom moment that I shared the quote from earlier we talked about for a second. And you've been able to right size to something that brings you greater happiness. But you're still a CEO. You're still by nature a business person. You have a dozen amazing coaches on your team. You've got a massive client base, tax schedule. I'm sure you could easily fall back into the grind if you didn't continually remind yourself to focus on the right things, for actual time management. What are you spending your time on? I'm curious about the practices you tie into your daily life that help you both refocus on your objectives and, and also not go down the rabbit hole of increasing workload and stress and anxiety that come with it. This is such a big problem uh, that we hear about from folks in our community all the time. How do we not fall back into those patterns that are in the wrong direction? So I'll share my personal practices with the caveat that please don't take these as prescriptive. They work for me. Okay. I wake between five and five 30 every day, feed the cat, make coffee, Sometimes I'll turn off the air conditioning, which is now jumping, uh, rolling up. And uh, <laughs> I journal, usually sitting west, watching the sunrise bouncing off the mountains. And then I meditate. And then I go about my day. Um, Lately, I have found that I really need to spend time outside. So I've been doing a lot of meditation and journaling, sitting on the back porch of my house. <laughs> um, this morning, I had a 7 a.m. call live stream event that I did over to Europe. It was my second of the day. And at the end of it, I realized I needed a break. So I got on my bike and I rode for an hour. And then I came back and I did a call. And now I'm here with you. 
And at the end of this, I'll go sit outside and I'll have my lunch. What's the point of all that? I don't hold tightly to the notion of productivity. I don't try to optimize for efficiency. Yeah, you're right. I have a robust company that's growing and quite demanding. I'm the CEO. I also have 35 individual clients, each of whom needs time. This is, this is the second of what will be three live stream events I'm doing today alone. But I feel good. I'm in the green. Because every day I weave in self-care. Every day. It's not self-indulgent. It's my, it enables me to make sure that I show up for you for an event like this. So that I don't come here and just go through the motions and bullshit my way through. That's painful to me. Folks, I've got one more question for Jerry, then we're going to turn it over to our members for questions. So please put those into Zoom chat now. And um, yeah, now's the time to do it. So drop it in the chat and we'll pick those up in a second. So Jerry, one more question for you. We often ask our guests to imagine they're traveling back in time, able to give advice to the younger version of themselves. And we ask what three things they would share. So if you're able to approach yourself, a young man getting your start as a venture capitalist in New York, what would you tell him? Or what would you tell us as we proceed on our journeys? The first thing I would say is what I say to a lot of people right now is just because you feel like shit doesn't mean you are shit. And just don't worry so much about it. Another thing I would say is advice that I received many years ago, which is you worry too much. You're going to be all right. And the third thing is you're not alone. Mm-hmm. One of the things I really appreciate about, appreciate about what you're doing with Founders First is whether intentionally or not, you're giving people the sense that they're not alone. You're actually reaching back in time, Aaron, and teaching a mid-20-year-old version of you that relevancy is less important than community. Mm-hmm. And so by creating community, you're giving ease and comfort. And that's brilliant. Yeah, and I think part of it has come from my own value that I got from things like EO, which I did join 15 years ago, um, and other organizations that bring founders together. And then also from part of it being that I couldn't find entrepreneurial groups where I could have a conversation I tried to have with my friend in the bar, where I could just completely open up about the personal side. There's parts of that in other organizations. Our first rule in the Founders First community is actually no business talk. So there's none of anything else. If you want to learn how to write your business plan and approach investors or build a product, go somewhere else. There's a million resources for those sorts of things. If you want to think about how to be present and the best version of yourself when you walk into that boardroom to make the pitch or to just communicate with other people in an authentic way or to keep yourself healthy or try and understand why success and happiness are two different things. This, these are the types of conversations we try and foster here. So this is incredible. Kevin, uh, I've got a question from Kevin McCarney here. Kevin, great to see you. Um, Kevin's question is, I cannot find a morning ritual with young kids in a startup. How do you go about testing, finding, and committing to a morning ritual amidst a 24-7 world with family and work? I heard this from a founder earlier this week who said, she said that 
she just has no time for herself right now because everyone else around her is a complete disaster and she's keeping them <laughs> on their feet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so first of all, Kevin, I want to just uh, acknowledge that it's really difficult that when you have young children and start up, um, time just disappears. There's no question about that. And I did not, you know, while I've journaled every day since I was 13, I didn't always have this routine. I, I have three children and they are 30, 28, and 23. And when they were munchkins, I wasn't sitting on the cushion, right? I was like getting them dressed and getting ready for school. And oh my God, dad, I need a permission slip signed, you know, all of that stuff. <laughs> the thing I would say is to try to think of this process as an arc and that you're in the space right now where the ritual is embedded in what you're doing. So, for example, and, and I don't mean to make to, to dismiss the difficulty of what I'm about to say. I recognize it's hard. But is it possible to take small moments of connectedness because the ritual is less important than the notion of connecting. And so when you are feeding your one-year-old in the high chair and you're giving them porridge or oatmeal or something like that, and you're making the train, choo, 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 right? Is that an opportunity for connection? Is that an opportunity for you to connect within yourself? Or when you're changing a diaper, or when you're packing a backpack or lunch, or I guess everybody's virtual right now, and, or when you, Dad, Zoom's not working, I can't get into my classroom, you know, all of that stuff. If you can extract from that, that sense of meaning, briefly. Same thing with work. If you can extract from that sense of connectedness, it will go, go a long way to easing the stress. Be gentle on yourself with not having a ritual. You know, Tim Ferriss, God love him, the rituals, right? Easy, easy. You'll get there. Next question's from Ian around the investment industry. I'm really curious about this one. Can you share any insights about how the VC and private equity community is beginning to embrace the concept of investing in the emotional well-being of the leaders of their portfolio investments? Is it improving? So there's some expectation that maybe that wasn't great in the past. Oh, it definitely wasn't great in the past. And I think it is improving. Um, and then it sort of, it's always two steps forward, one step back. Um, uh, we do these boot camps uh, where we get multi-day immersive experiences. Now we've got a virtual one coming up in November, but for years we did them in person, many times at Brad Felt's place. And uh, after two or three years of doing this, we finally launched one just for investors. And one of the most important moments was when we began, we have a ritual we call struggles in which people anonymously share the things that they're struggling with. And like I, Aaron, would read your struggle, you read mine, and then that creates a little bit of secret. <clears throat> what we started to do was have the VCs read the struggles of CEOs generally. And what ended up happening was that whole barrier that exists around power and money began to fall away. 
And they started to experience the, oh, just like me, you have imposter syndrome. Oh, just like me, you're trying to balance family and work demands. Oh, just like me, just like me. You go back and forth, back and forth. That experience starts to open people up. Now, I'll confess that I knew I wanted to affect the whole ecosystem and I had to go where the power was. And so I've made a conscious effort. Six of my individual clients are investors. And by helping them deal with their anxieties, we stop it from turning into aggression and we open up the empathy And so long-winded way of saying, yes, I see the change happening. And I'm pleased by that. I also think that there's tremendous work being done by people like the folks at All Race who are trying to break up the old ways of doing things. In that case, the patriarchy. But there are other ways that that system is being broken. And hopefully that'll bring in some heart into the process. I had a um, just a random reconnection with my lead private equity investor who in- invested our Series B round, which was forty million dollars in two thousand and ten. Um, that was real money. Yeah, yeah. Scared <laughs> me shitless to take that kind of money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, just they they were looking at a company recently. Saw my name on the cap table because I've been doing some work there and. Um, and just wanted to reconnect. And it was the most interesting conversation I've had with an investor probably in my entire career. Because first of all, we weren't across from the, the table or even on the same side of the table. We were just two human beings on the phone checking in how, for how the last 10 years have been, how his kids have grown, how my kids have grown. There was very little discussion about business. And we both opened up about my, I opened up about my struggles. I think he'd heard me speaking more publicly about it recently and said, wow, I had no clue. And I said, don't worry, it wasn't your fault. I didn't tell anybody and I didn't want you to know. Um, so thank you. I guess I pulled that off, even though that wasn't the right decision. Um, and he shared some things that he'd gone through in that time. In fact, the exact days of us selling the company to uh, the acquirer in the end, um, the days and weeks in, in that period of time that he was struggling with on his side, that I had absolutely no clue that were going on. And I. We were both in tears, and after the call, um, I just had this epiphany of, about what if we could have been there for each other in those moments in, in that way and, and not had our business hats on and our suit and ties and sport coats on thinking about the roles that we were supposed to be filling. Um, there was an entire human being on the other side, and I'm guilty as the entrepreneur, not the person in power in that situation, but for my part in not seeing that as well. It's one of my regrets and something I want to do differently. Well, you were both socialized to wear armor. And in that moment, you took off the armor. And that was a good moment. Our next question, uh, Barbara has a great question here. I love this one because it has to do with persistence. We're all told as entrepreneurs, we should have grit and persistence and never give up. And that's how you win. So her question is, I have four to six deals that I've been swirling for one and a half to three years, I go back and forth between accepting and working too much and trying to make them happen. If we're doing everything I think we should be, uh, how much do we accept and trust the universe? And how much do we keep work, work, working at it? All right, I'm gonna read from my book. Okay. This is from chapter eight. 
I often speak of resiliency. And no matter how much I try to do otherwise, I still manage to come across as if I'm speaking about grit. So I'll speak about grit. True grit is more than the capacity to grin and bear it. To understand true grit, you need to understand false grit. False grit is brittle. It's the sense that we're nothing if we can't take a punch. In fact, we define taking a punch as the ability to not feel pain when we are punched. False grit is dangerous. It feeds a stubbornness that, in turn, can feed delusion. We mistake the tendency to delude ourselves that our relationship will improve, our companies will succeed, if only we double down on our old patterns, grip the steering wheel until, until our knuckles whiten and bear down. Leaders who persist out of stubbornness, believing themselves to be gritty, are at best delusional and at worst reckless. True grit is kind. True grit is persistent. True grit persists not in holding on to false beliefs against all evidence, but in believing in one's inherent lovability and worthiness. True grit is the leader believing in the team's purpose, its capacity to overcome obstacles, and the relevancy of the cause. We have to be careful in this moment because we tell ourselves that we are being gritty and what we are being is stubborn. I remember an entrepreneur calling me and saying, how do I know when I should pull the plug? How do I know when I should let go of this company, this portfolio? How do I know when enough is enough? That's the role of community. To open ourselves up to people saying, Aaron, you're trying too hard. Let it go. Right? Um, it's a tough spot. But behind all of that wish to be persistent is the fear of failure. Is the fear that if I let go, I'll be worthless. Just like you walking into the bar, turns out you were still alive afterwards. And even if one or two, I believe the questioner's name was April. Is that right? What was Barbara? Barbara, I'm sorry. Barbara, even if one of those companies that you're holding on so tightly to fails, were you kind? Did you act in a way that you would be proud? What kind of adult were you in that process? So a long-winded response, but it was a very important question, and it deserved that, that space. There's, a, there's another G word that I think gets us in just as much trouble as grit, and our next question is from my friend Jennifer Cullenbein. Jennifer, it's great to see you here. Thanks for being here. Um, Jennifer asks, I have a nonprofit on purpose that provides holiday gifts to 82,000 children every year. Is it okay to be happy in this space and not focus on the G word growing larger or doing more? Others, board of directors, staff, volunteers seem to need growth goals. Right. So the answer to your question is you already know the answer. 
because you gave us the first fact at the very beginning, 82,000 children. God bless you. Um, and implicit in the question was another answer, which was an intentionally nonprofit. And what that reminded me of is a phrase I've been using lately. A lot of coaches call or write and say, hey, is there any space that we can join Reboot? And I always say, we're an intentionally small company. Because we like the work that we do. And I would say that the people who are pushing you to grow may, I don't know for sure, but may be trying to assuage their own issues by asking you to be someone than you really are, other than who you really are. And so I would use that as a jumping off point for a really curious conversation that goes like this. Um, what are we missing by, by staying intentionally small, focused, and effective? Is there really an opportunity in that growth? What, what, what need would we be re meeting by growing? Now, if what you conclude is that you want to reach 160,000 children, okay, then that's something to consider. But for God's sake, there's no reason to grow just for growth's sake. Gary, thanks once again for your time, your candor, your incredible insight. We post these recordings and these discussions inside our community, just so everybody knows. So, you know, many of us will be reviewing it over and over again. I feel like I need to be Venmoing you $180 like I do to my therapist. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, I'm a lot more expensive than your therapist. <laughs> well, not for a minute. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. We are. So grateful for your time and everyone. Remember Jerry's new book, Reboot, Leadership, and the Art of Growing Up. An incredible read and full of insights we can all learn from. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Jerry. See you next time. Thanks, Aaron. Take care, everyone. Thank you for joining us at Founders First. This conversation continues in the Founders First community. Search Founders First Community in the App Store on your phone to learn how to prioritize your health and wellness to become more successful, get your questions answered by top entrepreneurs, and receive notifications about upcoming shows. Until next time, stay healthy, be at your best, go change the world. Yeah.